0: Welcome to the study of God's Word with Pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, to be precise. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is a Bible study that I've entitled, Yes, God is working even in that, part one. As we have a part two coming up soon. Yes, God is even working in that. Whatever you might bring to him and wonder if God is working in it, the answer is yes. So let's read this together, okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Let's read it together. Let's read it loud. I'll start it off, and then you guys finish it off. You ready? Romans 8, 28. And we know for the good to those who love God according to his purpose. Isn't it such a great truth? Romans 8, 28 is meant to be a pillow to rest your weary head on. To know that yes, God is working even in that. That God is at work all the time. That yes, he is using that situation somehow. That yes, God cares about you. That he hasn't forgotten about you. And I know that it's not always a comforting verse to hear when you're in the middle of a trial or a testing. Somebody finds out that you're, you're going through something and, and they say, hey, I have a verse for you. I have a scripture for you. And they text it to you or they share it with you. And there it is. It's Romans eight twenty-eight, 28. And it's, it's hard to receive at times. It seems so shallow. It might even sound like a cliche. But I want you to know that someone sharing a scripture with you is because they love you. And yeah, there you are, you're like, man, if you only knew how bad it was, if you only knew what I was feeling, and yet on the other end, it's because we don't know how how bad it is, and we don't know everything that you're going through, that we reach out to the God who does. And not everyone is so versed in the scriptures. Not everyone knows so many different places to go. But one of the first verses that's introduced to someone, one of the first verses maybe of the top ten that are memorized by a new believer is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it's because of the hurt that you're going through, and it's because of of what you're facing that, that we grasp on to the most powerful truth, maybe even in our own lives, to share with you, to help sustain you, to help carry you through this time to remind you you're not alone, to remind you that God is at work, and as we watch you go through pain, we reach out for that powerful pillar of truth to share with you. God is at work. And it's true, not everything goes our way. We know that. We, don't, we understand it. Not everything happens the way that we plan. There are tragedies. There are sudden tragedies. The wor- world is filled with sorrows and difficulties our own lives perhaps filled with them. Some experience more than others. Some just seem to, to have it laid on trial upon trial upon trial. Some are more obvious. Some are more private and everything in between. Jesus faced them. And if we follow him, then we will too. As we learned, Paul taught us for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us." You know, Paul wrote something else, and if you turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 4, he reminds us how tough times can cause us to lose heart, and tough times can lo- cause us to lose sight of eternity. And tough times can cause us to, to lose sight of God and His purposes in our lives. The pain can be so deep and so intense. And what does he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16? It says, therefore we do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, and if you haven't already marked this, please mark this phrase, Our light affliction is working for us. That's important to remember in tough times. The things that are happening in your life, God is using them and working. They're working for us, not against us. They're they're working for us to develop and strengthen us, to conform us, as we learn in Romans 8.29, into the image of Jesus Christ. These light afflictions, why can we see them as light? Because God's working in them and, and He's using them. They're working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. As we approach our trials by faith, we trust that there's purpose in our pain, there is an end that we will come to where we will understand how all the pieces fit together. And we come back to Romans chapter 8 and we remember what we learned here is we know that all things work together for the good. A believer who's been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ knows this. We may not always believe it. We may not always accept it but we know it, and therefore that fuels our faith to look at what we don't see and not to be distracted by what we do see. Trials work for us, not against us. God is in control. There is an end to what we're going through. Maybe you heard the story about the guy that lost his dog. Uh, He put an advertisement in the newspaper to try to find him, and he wrote, missing Brown dog with three legs, blind in one eye, deaf in one ear, broken tail. Answers to the name Lucky. (laughs) Poor guy. There's no purpose in all that stuff in this dog's life. But there we are, limping along, nursing our wounds. And what do they call us? We answer to the name Blessed. Because God loves us. And He's done so much for us. And we respond to the grace of God with appreciation, knowing that God's gonna work all things together for the good. We're reminded of God's promises to us, of His faithfulness. His promise to us that He's working together for good, everything that comes into our lives. Or another way of looking at that is nothing that has ever happened in your life, nothing is ever wasted by God. It is all used according for His purposes and His plan for your life. The goal is to be made more like Jesus Christ. Notice verse 29. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. There's a conforming process, a work that is happening. Nothing, absolutely nothing is wasted by God. Now, that doesn't mean, this verse doesn't teach that God is working all things together for our comfort, or for our ease, or for our continual happiness, nor does it mean that all things are good. It doesn't mean that all things are good, because we know that not all things are good. Some things are just really bad, and hard, and difficult, and yet... All things are working together for good. Or you could put it this way. God is working all things together for our good and His glory. Where He'll receive all the attention and all the appreciation for the finished product as He works in our lives. It's true. Not everything happens to us as good. Some of it can be very bitter. Some of it can be very sour. Some of it can be very hurtful and surprising at that. I was reminded recently of this, this game that the kids play. It, it's, it uses Jelly Bellies, maybe you've heard of it. So Jelly Bellies are amazing, wonderful, some of the best candy that's ever been made on the planet Earth, Jelly Bellies. You can buy them, I'm doing this because you can buy them in a big old container at Costco. And they have all kinds of flavors in them. And and I'm one of those guys that I'll take it out and I'll separate the flavors because there's some of them in there that are just plain nasty. The the nastiest Jelly Belly is the licorice-flavored one. Why anybody likes that flavor, I don't understand it. And so we separate them and put them in a bag, and, and there's one of the brothers here likes licorice, but they never make them here, because nobody in our house, I, I never bring them into the office, because nobody in my house likes licorice, we throw them away. And that, that's just not right, throwing candy away. But I don't think licorice jelly bellies are real candy, so let's just make sure we understand. So, so you got the jelly bellies, and you like them, and then there's the good one. And then, so I looked it up for you guys, you guys get the whole picture, because I looked it up in between services. On this side, they make some really nasty Jelly Bellies. It's actually a game called Bean Boozle. Bean Boozle. They're the, they look the same, but very different tastes. So the high school kids were playing this not too long ago, maybe a year or so ago, and I'm going to be Mr. Pastor and go in and play the game with great courage and great ba- bravery. And basically what you do is you lay out the, the regular ones and the nasty ones, and you mix them up. And then you pick one, and you take your chances. So on the good side, so on the good side, the white one is, I think, coconut. Oh, so good. Just stack them up with white ones and take them in. But on the bad side, now I'm gonna, you guys aren't the bad side, but I'm just doing it for the, just so you know, (laughs) I'll flip it around on another one. So on the bad side, back then, they've changed it since then, I'll give you the new flavors, but back then, the white one on the bad side was baby wipes. Clean baby wipes, but baby wipes nonetheless. So I step into the game, and I'm Mr. Brave. I take a white one, very apprehensive, put it in, bite it. Yes, I got a good one. Ha 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 ha! All oh, you guys lose, I win. I got a good one, and so it was coconut. It was good. I got this game, no problem. Go around the table, couple bad ones. It comes back to me. I go back to the white ones. That's my go-to. I'm the one with the right eye. I go. I take it out. I bite into it. Baby wipes. And by then, there's nothing you can do. It's stuck on your tooth. It's all in your mouth it's gone up your nose already, and it is nasty. So, so some of the flavors, some of the flavors, so they've changed the, they've changed the baby wipes now. They've improved it to be sour milk. You could also pick the wrong one that is boogers. Or rotten eggs. Canned dog food. Stinky socks barf, there were, (laughs) I know what to get you for Christmas, (laughs) moldy cheese, if you mix those all together, I think you'd agree that it would not be very tasty, and life's like that, isn't it? You just pick it up, you think it's going to be, you just, you you, you walk into something, you just think it's going to be the best, it's just going to be one, and then you bite into it, and you go, man, this is not good. And this is going to last for a while. And life can be like that. Life can be really, really hard and tasteless and difficult and sometimes the taste will last. And yet God is at work, isn't He? Working all things together for the good. You know, I have in my hand, I have in my hand a cookbook. It's the Better Homes and Garden Cookbook. Now those of you that only look up your recipes on the internet, this is a cookbook. It is a book with paper inside, and, and inside, now this one would particularly was, was printed in 1968. This version, I borrowed it from one of the sisters here at the church, and inside are recipes of all kinds. So there's the appetizers, there's the breads, there's the barbecues, there's candies. Well, that's a good one. There's canning, easy meals, there's cookies, there's, there's all sorts, lunches, dinners, and of course the best part of a cookbook are the desserts. The desserts, and inside a cookbook are a series of recipes of what it would take and how it would take and all the steps that are necessary to take all of these massive ingredients to the finished product. And so I looked up and I found a recipe on lemon chiffon cake. Lemon chiffon cake, here's the recipe. Six egg yolks, six egg whites. To which my first question is, don't they come in the same container? That's how it goes. (laughs) One tablespoon of lemon peel, half a cup of orange juice, a teaspoon of vanilla, one and a quarter cups of all-purpose flour, half a cup of sugar, and a half a cup of lemon juice. And then there are instructions on how to mix them, put them together, you then heat up the oven and mix them all together and put them in. But I skipped one ingredient. because. You know, this is just a weird ingredient. It's called cream of tartar, right here. You need a half a teaspoon of this if you want the lemon cake, this stuff. Last night I found out that this is a very bitter substance and that it's a bonding agent. Cream of tartar. It's also a very expensive illustration. It cost me five bucks at King Supers to pick this up yesterday. And I went into the spice section looking for it. This stuff's so bad they hide it in the corner, man. You can't even find it. There's like a million of them there because nobody's buying it. I think it lasts forever, forever. Cream of tartar. But you're not having a lemon cake without it. You're not gonna be able, this particular lemon cake, you're not gonna be able to have what, what's in mind by the creator of the recipe unless you add this to the mix. You have to have it. As bitter and as tart as it might be, it's gotta go in. And it's gotta go in at the right time. And it's gotta be mixed in thoroughly. And it's gonna be put into the heat of the oven, cream of tartar can't have it without it. There are many things that are needed but by them to make this cake, but by themselves, they're not very appealing. I mean, who wants, you know, if you were having a great dinner and then for dessert, you bring out, hey, what's for dessert, what's for dessert? It's a one and a quarter cup of flour, have at it. And you're like, flour? Yeah, I'm giving you one of the ingredients of the lemon. Hey, here's some cream of tartar, have at it, empty it out, I need a new one. And you're like, what, what? Here's some lemon peels, chew on them for a while. And again, isn't life like that? There's even a phrase, Uh, that's that's, that's used to describe a difficulty in life where you refer to life being like raw eggs. You know, unless you're working out or trying to beef up or anything, I don't know too many people that are downing raw eggs in the morning. That just sounds nasty to me. I did it as a kid, it was nasty then, I'm sure it still is now. And some of you mentioning eating raw eggs just made your gag reflex move too. So it's like, it's nasty. Life can just be bad. And yet, and yet like a recipe, God uses it all. You could put it this way. If you don't use, if you use all the ingredients, but you choose to take some out, you're not going to get the same result. If you use all the ingredients, but you want to add your own thing, now you could say, Ed, I've adjusted recipes, and I've done, well, that's good, but it's not the original recipe. You know, I've taken this out, and I've added this. Well, Well, now it's your recipe. You see, God, you could say, has a recipe for your life. We often refer to that as a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. And, and he's going to take, you know, the good parts like sugar, and he's going to mix it with the bad parts like cream of tartar, and he's going to mix it up. He's going to put it in the oven, and through the heat of trials and difficulties, the finished product's going to come out. God has a plan for your life. And God will allow in measured quantities some things that you don't think are desirable. And God is going to prohibit certain things in your life that that you think you really need, and God says that's not what you need in order to get you at the end result. Nothing is wasted. You, You look at things and you go, man, what is this, Lord? Why this? And you remember God's working all things together for the good. He uses the eggs and He uses the flour and He uses the sour and the sweet and the good and the bad. They come to us all because God loves us. And He's working all things together for our good, for our best, for His will. When we come back to Romans 8, 28, it's easy to read this verse this way. And now we know that most things work together for the good. It's easy to read it, and now we know that some things work together for the good. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches us that God works all things together for the good. It's not most. It's not some. It's all of it. All the difficulties, even if those difficulties go way back to your childhood and to your upbringing, all the way to your present day. I think throughout the Scriptures, if there's ever a man that understands this truth, it would be Joseph. Joseph understands this so well. His life speaks to us of a testimony of God working all things together for for good. God's recipe for his life had both its ups and downs. And I encourage you to spend some time reviewing his life today. A, A full 13 chapters in the book of Genesis cover Joseph's life. From chapter 37 all the way to the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50 contain insights on Joseph's life, and Joseph lived out this truth. Even as you read his life, as you go, even though you know the end, as you're reading his life, you may come and go, I don't know how God's going to use this, and I don't know how God's going to use this, and I don't ever want to — and you, you, you might even be shocked the things that Joseph went through. You know, Jacob, his dad loved him. That's really how things open up. Jacob loves Joseph, so much so that of all of his brothers, Jacob alone gives Joseph a very special coat, a unique coat that he gave. You could even say that Jacob probably showed some favoritism to his son Joseph. But his brothers hated him deeply. Their hatred was rooted in envy and jealousy. And like wildfires that we're praying for even today, envy and jealousy rage. And they decided to remove him from the family. And they throw him into a pit. And they take a message home to dad, lying about his his youngest son, saying, he's dead, he was eaten by animals. And from the pit, they end up selling him, they show a little compassion, they end up selling him as a literal slave. Imagine that. Your own brother and sister turning on you to the point where they sell you as a literal slave. That's how Joseph's life begins. All the while, they also made it very hard for their dad, thinking that they—he had lost his son. It was from that darkened pit Joseph sold into slavery, and he ends up as a servant to a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar was a man with great power and, and, and great pull, and Joseph was a faithful servant. Whatever he put his hand to, the Bible says that he was faithful, and he did what he needed to do in the circumstances that he was in. He was so faithful with his his new master, Potiphar, that he caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. No no doubt there was a, a winsomeness and a handsomeness about Joseph and caught Potiphar's wife's eye to the point where she passionately pursued him to have sex. to to somehow commit sexual sin with Joseph, and he resisted, and he resisted, and she kept pushing, and she kept pushing till finally he resisted to the point of running away without his clothing on. He had decided he would rather be embarrassed without his clothing than sin against his master and ultimately to sin against God. I mean, here's a man that has made the right decisions over and over and over again only to seemingly be rewarded with great pain and sorrow. What is he rewarded with for his sexual purity? She accused him of rape, to which was a false accusation, but he had no defense. Potiphar siding with his wife, throws Joseph in prison to where he spent 13 years of his life there. Most of those years, he spent hopeful that he would be remembered, but he was actually forgotten. Until one day, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, king of the known world at the time, he had a dream that troubled him, and word got back to him, hey, there's a guy in prison that can interpret dreams. And God remembered Joseph there, and Joseph was brought before Pharaoh, interpreted the dream, and he becomes second in command, Pharaoh's right-hand guy. And God uses Joseph because there was a famine coming and God uses Josephs to put food away and prepare the world for an upcoming seven-year famine. His faithfulness continues. And he's in a great place of great power and great wealth and great stature. And ultimately, it appears that everything works out. But see, there's, it's, there's more, as Paul said, there's more than what meets the eye. If you just looked at, the, at, at his physical life, you would say, wow, things did turn out well. But there's a spiritual reality going on behind the scenes that's even greater. Because you see, God wants to deal with the nation of Israel through the sons of Jacob. He wants to teach them and prepare them for what's up ahead. What's up ahead, by the way, is the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ, Messiah, And God through every status, even through Joseph's life is preparing for the coming of Messiah still thousands of years away. And so God has set this up and used all the calamities in Joseph's life, working them all together for what? Joseph's good and God's glory. Let me show you what I mean. Would you turn over to Genesis chapter 45 with me? Genesis chapter 45. I mean, as you follow along the life of Joseph, you might think, man, this guy's just going through it. How's he going to make it through? You you might approach him and go, is this how you treat God's kids? Is this a reward for loving you and serving you and faithfulness? And you can imagine Joseph might have felt that as well, but never anywhere in the Bible does Joseph question God or share any of the things that we might feel if we were going through his circumstances. There was never a bitterness about him, never a sourness, a ca- never any caustic thing coming out of his mouth. He wasn't expecting a pit, or prison, or slavery, or false accusations, or loneliness. And yet, after Joseph ascends to the throne, we come to, uh, to second in command, we come to Genesis 45, verse 1, he meets his brothers who come for help. And this is the great reveal, verse 1, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I got you now. No, no, it's not what it says. <laughs> he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And His brothers could not answer because they were dismayed in his presence. I think so. I think I know what they were expecting. And Joseph says in verse 4, Please come near to me. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting, and God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance." Joseph responds to the circumstances in his life by looking to God. There's no bitterness in his heart. There's no desire to get even or to make things worse, which he's certainly in a position to do. He instead calls his brothers close, and he doesn't rub it in, doesn't make them feel ga- bad. He just forgives them, checks in on his dad. And the real question for us, especially with the kind of help that we need in troubling times, or the kind of help that we need for our troubled hearts, can we have that kind of heart with people that have hurt us? Can, can, we, can we really extend forgiveness, even if... They don't want to receive it or don't accept it. You see, whenever you and I choose to forgive, we release that person from their debt against us, but we also release ourselves from the prison of pain and bitterness. You don't really want them to pay for it, do you? You don't really want them to feel bad or be grieved or angry with themselves, do you? All those experiences would destroy their lives. It would crush them under the weight. No, we want them in a right place with Jesus. And the way that that comes is by forgiveness. That great revelation of God's forgiveness. What was his key in particular? What was it about Joseph that kept him from bitterness all these years? You sold me, he could have said. You spent that money. You were happy I was gone. You lied to our dad. You made him cry night and day. You ruined our family. You wrecked everything. But instead, his focus was on God. Three times. Did you notice it? Three times. He describes the whole entire, his, he summarizes his whole life three times. Verse five, he says, God sent me. Verse seven, he says, God sent me. Verse nine, or excuse me, Excuse me, verse 8, so now it wasn't you that sent me here, but God. That was the perspective that kept Joseph grounded in faith. Joseph knows God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. It's almost as if he could say to his brothers, you credit yourself way too much for what you did. Because God, he worked all things together for good. He redeems it all. Even as I was praying with a brother last night, he came up after service. And his face was a little familiar, but not too much. I remember faces far better than I remember names. And, and so he came up and waited till after the service. And he says, hey, Ed, do you, Pastor Ed, do you remember me? And I said, you know, I sort of, I sort of kind of remember, sort but I'm not really. And he says, yeah, I've changed a lot. He was here many years ago. And then I haven't seen him in many years. And he was here because he moved down south. And what happened between the years he was here and the, year, the, the time I saw him last night, what happened was meth. He got addicted to meth, and it wrecked him. He was showing me in his arms how his muscles are gone. You could see the gauntness in his face. You could see what it did to his complexion. You could see what it did to his eye sockets, and you could see the damage that it done that he had done to himself through his drug use through this methamphetamines. And, and he came here in, in, in a desperate sense. He was visiting up here for something and he says, I just need to go back to Calvary. I need to talk to pastor and, and I want him to pray for me. And when he came up and we talked and, and he asked me to pray, he was desperate. He said, I just pray that God will do a work of restoration in my life. I, I want to be restored. He says, pastor, please pray over me a prayer of restoration. And so we gathered together, we laid hands on him, Jim and I, and we laid hands and I began to pray. And I began to pray whatever came to mind and what ended up coming to mind as I was ending the prayer was a promise that God gave to me many, many years ago. Many years ago, it was a promise in the book of Joel, chapter 2, where God is giving the promise to the children of Israel and he's telling them, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. And for so many years, that was a, a, a it propelled me in many different decisions to the point where I I, kind of measured it this way. I was looking forward to the day where I served God with all of my life, more years, even just one second more than I served the enemy and I served this world before I got saved. And that was an important date for me. Unfortunately, a tragedy took place in my life and I lost track of that peace, but it happened. I have served God more than I have serve this rotten, wicked, nasty world because God restores. And I was able to pray with hands on this brother and just knowing, because he's, he's afraid. You know, man, and he's afraid. And this is what happens, this is what happens. You know, people, people see problems and then they load more condemnation on the person. And somebody really close to him has been telling him, well, you did this to yourself. You did this to yourself. You did this to yourself. You know, people don't really need to be reminded of that. It's one of the things they remember every single day. It's true. And I did agree with him. I said, you know what, brother, you're right. You did this to yourself, but God is bigger than what you do to yourself. And you're right. You don't need to carry around this guilt and this shame of the bad decisions that you've made. Because we all make bad decisions. It's just by the grace of God that we would be in the place that you're at. And I was able to pray with confidence. I was able to pray with confidence knowing that God is the restorer, that God is working something behind the scenes that maybe we don't see yet. It's not revealed yet, but when it is, well, well, let me show you one more. Turn over to Genesis 50 now, verse 20. When it's revealed, we're gonna be able to look back and say, "This this is what God did. This is what God did. This is what God did. And Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 if you like to write in your bibles you can create your own little cross references Genesis 50:20 is the Romans 8:28 of the Old Testament and just just understand this Joseph's living out Romans 8:28 before it was ever written why because it reflects the character and nature of our eternal God it was happening even before it was put down on in print because God is that way, God will be that way, and God has always been that way throughout history. And Genesis 50, 20 is the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament, and Joseph's speaking again, and he looks at his brothers, and he says, don't be afraid, verse 19, for I'm in the place of God, but as for you, you meant evil against me. That's the truth. But God meant it for good, and that's the truth, in order to save And bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And that's the banner in your life and the banner in mine. That nothing in our lives is wasted by God. That even those things that are meant for evil, God is going to use for good. Nothing's going to undermine the will of God in your life. Nothing's going to sidetrack God on the plan and the purpose or as we've learned, the recipe that God has for your life. And yeah, there's some things in there that's just like, man, does this cake really need that? Because it's nasty. I mean, is this really what I've got to get? And, and I don't know how it's going to work because by itself, it just tastes so bad. But in the hands of the faithful one that we've submitted our lives to, he's able to put it all together and mix it all together for good. Not everything happens is going to taste good. You might find yourself tricked one day by somebody with these little jelly beans. <laughs> and are just like, what is this? And they're over snickering at you and you said what you meant for evil. God is meant for good. You know, you may just walk into something, you might wake up to something, a text message might lead to something horrible and bad. Life can change with a phone call, with a car accident, with a medical visit, life changes and it's bitter and caustic and it doesn't taste well, things that are unpleasant. But God is working all things together in the right quantities, at the right amounts, with the right mixing, with the right heat, with the right timing, and will always turn out for your good and His glory. That never changes. So we need to learn to bear up under, right? Perseverance, that's what's being developed in us, not quitting steadying on. Another, another um, person I talked to last night was a teenage girl. A family had brought her up to, to talk to her because she's been suicidal lately. And, and she has, she's, you know, she's alive, she's not gone through with it, um, but she's been overwhelmed by these feelings and they, they wanted me to talk to her and wanted me to pray with her. And, and as I was, I was just reminded. I was just constantly reminded how the enemy is just wanting to kill, steal, and destroy. And this poor girl, you know, she, she, is, she is living out some of the things that, that we're reading in Joseph. life. He was just a young man when things were happening to him. But being her, being, being her, her first time here, and being encouraged by the youth ministry and being encouraged by the family was here and and then being encouraged after the service, I believe she left with a smile on her face. She left with a glimmer of hope. She left being reminded of her faith. Uh, It was so beautiful because I asked her, you know, I never take any assumptions whether a person saved or not. So I, I asked her about her relationship with the Lord and she just went on and went on and went on. And it was a beautiful thing, not only to hear, but for her to say it and hear herself say it. Because there's encouragement in your walk in relationship with God. But we can't, we, we, we have to be careful, church, just as we head out, to not assume anything about anybody. And, and to be very, very careful to serve them well. Take them right directly to the cross of Jesus Christ where hope is found. Because then if we take them there, then we're going to be there. And we're going to be encouraged right where with them. In the, and, and yeah, we may not have an answer for the big thing that's in your life right now and I may not know when it's gonna end, even though I wish it ended yesterday like you do, and and I don't know how he's gonna provide here, and I don't know how God's gonna show up here, and I don't know how much of this he's gonna allow over there, and I don't know how long you're gonna carry that. I don't know, but I do know this. My Bible says, and has been proven to be true time and time again, for we know that all things work together for the good, for those that love him, and those that are called according to his purpose. It's true. And Father, we rest our lives on that simple truth. Uh, We don't always understand the recipe or the ingredients. We don't always understand. We think that we've made a big mistake or it's a big failure or a big tragedy. And somehow, God, you redeem and you restore. Just like in Joel, you redeem and you restore. You reconcile and you revive, you bring life back into situations, into relationships. And, and Father, we pray for the, for the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit to go before us, that we would leave here with Romans 8.28 as a comfort, comfortable pillow. I know we'll probably wake up to tragedy tomorrow, like it's still, the trial hasn't ended. And we never thought we'd be in a trial for a year or two or three, but here we are, and we've made it this far. And God, I know in your strength, we're going to make it another day. We're going to make it as, as long as you allow it. In your strength, we're going to make it. So I just pray for those that are carrying different things. Not everybody's going through a, a real hard time. So God, that's awesome. I'm so happy for them that there's just, their are houses filled with joy and happiness, and, and it's just one of those things. And, and sometimes there's houses filled with joy and happiness and mixed with pain and grief, and sometimes, you know, houses are just filled with, with darkness and difficulty. And, and anyway, Lord, in each way, have your way with us. Have your way and use us and use our lives for your purposes. Forgive us for clamoring for comfort and ease and instead god help us to live for your purposes your glory that you would ultimately get all the attention in our lives what difference does it make all the things that we're on temporarily you know what difference does it make the only difference that we can really make is eternal and i know some people are listening or waiting for you uh, that restoring power, Lord, that they would serve you, longer, um, serve you longer than they serve the world. can't wait for that day in so many people's lives. And my heart's just heavy for the kids, God, especially these church kids, you know, because we're raising them in your ways and they don't have to experience all the craziness that we experienced. And yet, at the same time, the enemy has his own ways of shooting the arrows at our kids, no matter how old they are, 30-year-old kids, 40-year-old kids. Five year olds. So give us wisdom as parents, God, that we might be walking in wisdom, walking in your purity, walking in your strength. And we just commit our kids to you because they belong to you ultimately. We only have them on loan, on hold, you know, just as just lend it out to us. We want to be faithful to you with these kids. That you would have your way with them as we as we head out, and live our lives to your glory in Jesus' name